All right, it is great to be with you again tonight. Uh, it's great to be back at Summer Sanctus. This is the second time I've spoken at Summer Sanctus. I spoke the purple shirt year, uh, which I think that's Summer Sanctus 5, uh, so it's been several years, but uh, great to be back, great to be a part of this. It's, it's just a wonderful camp. Uh, thanks so much to Pastor Neil and others who worked so hard to make this happen. Pastor Booth, of course, uh, the original vision, it's, it's, it's a great event uh, for you all, and uh, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, tonight I'm going to talk about judgmentalism. Uh, have any of you ever accused someone of being judgmental? Have any of you ever had somebody accuse you of being judgmental? Okay, actually I see a lot more hands coming up uh, for that. Uh, the reality is we judge one another all the time. Uh, you're judging me right now, deciding whether or not you want to listen to me, whether or not you like the sound of my voice, whether or not you like the shirt that I'm wearing, whether the shirt goes with these pants. You're making all kinds of judgments about you, about me. Uh, as I speak, I'm going to be making all kinds of judgments about you, like who's listening and who's falling asleep. I'll be making judgments. Uh, we judge one another all the time. Uh, you just had dance practice. How'd that go? That was great, right? Okay. I hate to tell you this, but when you're out there on the dance floor, others are judging the way you dance. And you know this is true, because, and I, I can tell that some people are very concerned about that, but you know this is true because you're doing what? You're judging the way others dance as well, right? We do this all the time to one another. Did I just make you extra self-conscious, guys, telling you that? Uh, yes, guys, the girls are judging how you dance. All right, well, that's just the way it is. Um, I've been judged at times. I remember one time when, uh, just one of my biggest fears, uh, on, on a Sunday morning, my mic didn't get turned off when we went to sing a hymn. And so it comes through the speakers and out into the narthex. And I just, I'll self-judge here. I don't have the best singing voice. So I, I was, and I know the people who heard that judged the way I was singing. And I know that because they told me about it afterwards. They not only judged me, but they mocked me for it. So uh, we judge one another all the time. It, it's just part of life. Uh, and we, but we need to understand there are right and wrong ways to judge. And that's really what Jesus is going to teach us in Matthew chapter 7, the first six verses. So let me read this for you. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The word of the Lord. Be Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us through your word and the working of your spirit to judge rightly, to conform ourselves to the teaching of Jesus, to not judge in wrong ways, but to make a right judgment. Most of all, Father, we thank you that Christ Jesus was judged in our place that because he took the condemnation we deserved, we know we will be acquitted at the great judgment seat, before the great judgment seat on the last day. Father, help us to trust in you, to trust in Christ, your Son. Help us to grow in wisdom and discernment, 
Help us to learn from your word what you would have us to know and practice. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What do you think is the best-known verse in the scriptures? Uh, When I was growing up, there was really no question about this, and I'll kind of date myself here, but when I was growing up, undoubtedly, the best-known verse from the Bible in the culture was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And the reason that was the best-known verse from the Bible is because if you grew up watching the NFL, okay, like I did, every time they would go to kick a field goal or kick an extra point, somebody would lift up a John 3.16 banner back there behind the goalpost. Maybe some of you have seen this. You're all too young to really know about this, but maybe you've seen this. This happened maybe for a decade or longer. Some, you can talk to the old guys. You know, we would kind of know when it happened, and it, it faded out eventually. You don't see it today. But that was the best-known verse because it was there in every football game. You would see John 3.16 held out, and people would say, okay, what is that, what's that verse say? And it just kind of became a thing that people knew about. People kind of came to understand it as a, as a sort of simple summary verse of the whole Bible. And if you were going to say there's just one verse people can be familiar with, John 3.16 is a pretty good choice. But today people don't know John 3.16 uh, so well. Uh, in the culture today, I would say the best-known verse in the Bible is one of the verses I just read, Matthew 7.1, judge not. Now, this is the best-known verse in the Bible, and we're going to be old-fashioned, cutting-edge Christians. We need to know how this verse is being understood and used in our culture. You hear Matthew 7.1 quoted a lot, judge not, or sometimes it's paraphrased as, who are you to judge? And in fact, one thing I think we see, this is quoted so often by non-Christians in our culture, quoted by non-Christians who want to push back against Christians because they perceive us as Christians as judgmental and as therefore violating the teaching of Jesus, the one we claim to trust and to serve and to obey. So this, this is the situation we have in our culture. Matthew 7, 1, judge not, is being quoted by non-Christians against Christians our own Bibles being used against us. If the unchurched know anything that Jesus said today, they know this verse. It gets quoted constantly. This is really the world's playbook. This is the play they're running against the church today, to quote Matthew 7-1 against us. And so this is how I've seen it play out, and maybe you've seen this kind of thing happen too. Every time Christians make some kind of unpopular claim about what is right and wrong, no matter how loving we try to be, or humble we try to be, winsome we try to be in presenting that moral position or that moral argument, this is what we'll hear. Judge not. Do not judge. Who are you to judge? You know, it's our own scriptures being used against us. Abortion is wrong. Judge not. Homosexuality is wrong. Judge not. Fornication is wrong. Judge not. That's what we hear in our culture again and again. There was a book that came out uh, several years back uh, called Unchristian, and it studied people who had left the church. What they had to say, kind of like exit interviews, as people were leaving the church, departing from the faith and, and, and from the body of Christ, what did they have to say? And it surveyed them to get their feelings, their thoughts on, uh, on the church. And I know you can make statistics, say whatever you want, but this is pretty believable. 87% of people who left the church described Christians as judgmental. Basically, they saw 9 out of 10 Christians as being uh, judgmental, or, or that 9 out of 10 who left the church described Christians as 
judgmental. And obviously, this was an unattractive quality, one of the reasons that they cited for leaving the church. I mean, if today, if somebody calls you judgmental, they're insulting you. That's the bad thing to be called in our culture. Uh, and, and I think it's helpful for us to know how the world perceives us. They tend to see us as Christians as smug, as self-righteous, as intolerant, as censorious, you know, it's our judgmentalism that we're trying to make sure nobody has any fun. That's the stereotype of Christians that's out there in the world today. So we need to ask ourselves, when the world uses the words of Jesus against us, do they have a point or are they twisting the words of Jesus? Are they right? Are they telling us something we need to hear? Or are they misunderstanding what Jesus meant? Uh, we, we need to ask, when Jesus said, judge not, what did he mean? Well, let me start by saying this. If we're going to explore what Jesus meant by these words, judge not. We need to start with this. Whatever he means by those words, judge not does not actually mean you can't make any judgments. Judge not does not mean do not judge in any way or at any time whatsoever. That's obvious, I think, even from the immediate context in Matthew chapter 7. You know, if you're going to buy real estate, you are too young to buy real estate, but maybe you've heard this. If you go to buy real estate, what do they say is the most important thing about real estate? Location. Location, yes. Location, location, location. Okay. When it comes to understanding a verse of the Bible, what's the most important thing? Context, context, context. Or we could say location, location, location. The location of the text. Where's, it, where, where's this verse found? What other things are said around this verse? And when we look at Matthew 7, 1, in its wider context, its wider location, we see Jesus is certainly not forbidding any and all judgment. And so in verse 6, right at the end of the passage that I read, he speaks of some people who are pigs and dogs. And we might even think, there, you know, that sounds kind of judgmental for Jesus to say that, to call some people pigs and dogs. But he wants us to know who these pigs and dogs are as well. And for us to know who the pigs and dogs are, we've got to make a judgment. And so clearly Jesus wants us to be discerning. Whatever judge not means, it does not eliminate moral standards. It does not eliminate making evaluations of other people, even negative evaluations of other people. can't mean that because it's right there in this context, in this very location you see that. A few verses later, we didn't read this, but if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, come to Matthew 7.15, Jesus warns against false prophets. But knowing who the false prophets are, again, requires us to make judgments. And Jesus tells us how to identify these false prophets. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Well, that means we've got to make a judgment about their fruit. We have to judge fruit. Is the fruit good or bad? And that's how we determine what kind of prophet this is. Later in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus describes a church discipline process that certainly requires leaders in the church to make judgments. We've got to judge if something requires confrontation. Is this a big enough sin, a serious enough sin, that it needs to be confronted and corrected in some kind of direct and maybe even public kind of way? We've got to make a judgment whether or not our brother repents when we confront him with his sin. And, of course, ultimately, there's a judgment of excommunication there where a, a, a brother could be cast out of the church and now this one who was a brother is to be treated like a tax collector uh, because he's now on the outside of 
the church. So clearly, whatever Jesus means when he says judge not, he's not forbidding all judging. He's not forbidding all judgments. And this is one thing you need to know. You know, this comes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is paradoxical. There are so many statements in the Sermon on the Mount that sound extreme, that sound really one-sided, that sound so radical, and this would certainly be one of them. But when you look at them more closely, when you inspect them more closely, you find really these sayings of Jesus are really more like riddles or puzzles that have to be unraveled and solved. And so it is here. This is like a wisdom saying. It's a kind of riddle or a paradox. We've got to unpack it. Judge not, Jesus says. But we realize it's actually a little more complex than that. There are layers, there are nuances here that have to be brought in if we want to rightly understand what Jesus means. And it's not just here. I mean, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is this way. Jesus says, judge not, but he's clearly not forbidding all judging. In fact, I'll just tell you, it's not just in the context of Matthew's gospel. We can say this in the context of life. It is impossible to not make judgments. Making judgments is an inescapable part of life. Judgments are made in a court of law. And no one would tell a judge who's just rendered a verdict or would tell a jury that's just delivered a verdict, you're being judgmental. Because we know that's the job of the judge to render a verdict. That's his whole job, is to make a judgment. So we don't say to a judge, you're being judgmental. We accept that that's part of the legal system, a necessary part. When a student hands in an essay to his teacher, what does the teacher do with that essay? The teacher grades the essay, but grading is a form of judging. And the teacher might mark the essay, the essay up with all kinds of red ink, all kinds of judgments. And at the end of reading that essay, the teacher's going to make a final judgment and put a grade on it and say, this, this, this is how I judge it. This is how I evaluate it. Uh, if a pipe gets clogged at your house and you have to call out a plumber, he's going to inspect the situation and he's going to make a judgment about how to fix the problem. If something goes wrong with your car, take it to a mechanic. He's going to inspect it. He's going to have to make a judgment. He'll have to form a judgment about what's wrong with the car in order to fix the problem. Tonight, there are baseball games going on all over the country. And in those baseball games, there are umpires who are calling balls and strikes, who are calling bus base runners safe or out. They're making judgments. You can't have a game without the judgments. You have to have the judgments. They're, they're an inescapable part of the game. And as I said, judgments are also made on places like the dance floor. We're judging one another all the time. It's inescapable, forming opinions, evaluating people, and, and, and discerning things. Uh, we judge movies and books. There's a shirt over here, right, that says, don't judge a book by its movie? Okay, I think that's a really clever shirt. But hey, if you read a book or watch a movie, what do you do with it? You judge it. You evaluate it. You form an opinion of it. I like this. I didn't like that. You're making a judgment. That's really what it means to judge. It's to evaluate. It's to discern. It's to form a verdict, to form an evaluation of something. It means to form an opinion or a conviction about something. And we do this all the time. In fact, I started off by asking, you know, have any of you ever uh, been accused of being judgmental or accused others of being judgmental? The reality is, if you judge me, 
you know, if you criticize me, and if I say back to you, you're being judgmental, what am I being? I'm being judgmental to you as well. Okay? I'm judging you for judging me. It's just unavoidable. It's inescapable. So, again, whatever Jesus means, he doesn't mean you can't judge in any way whatsoever. That's clear. But then we have to ask, what does he mean? What is going on here? What kind of judging does Jesus forbid? What does judge not actually mean? Well, Jesus is forbidding a certain kind of judging, which he goes on to describe in the verses that follow. We see the characteristics of an unrighteous judging, or what I would even call a self-righteous judging. Think about what Jesus says here. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, if you judge others without mercy, you will be judged without mercy. That's something actually the Bible teaches again and again and again. In in the previous chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, which I know we're all familiar with. And in the Lord's Prayer, there is that line that I'm sure we all know and pray repeatedly, maybe daily, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then Jesus goes on after the prayer is over. This is the one part of the prayer he gives a commentary on afterwards. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. If you're unforgiving, you will be unforgiven. If you judge others without forgiveness, God will judge you without forgiveness. If you're a fault finder, if you have a critical spirit and you're hard on others, Jesus is saying God's going to judge you the same way. The same measure will be used against you. God will judge you the way you judge others. It's measure for measure, judgment for judgment. As you do unto others, so it will be done unto you. That's how God's judgment works. So, obviously then, just to throw an example out, you wouldn't want to judge someone else harshly just because they sin in a different way than you happen to sin. Jesus is indicating here that we should be generous and kind, if you want to connect this to the previous talk, we should be generous and kind in the judgments we form of others. James teaches the same thing. The whole book of James is really something of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In James 2.13, echoing the teaching of Jesus, James says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if you want to be shown mercy, show mercy. Mercy is for the merciful. Those who show mercy to others will be shown mercy to God. Not because showing mercy somehow earns God's favor. It's not like you're leveraging God's favor or God's mercy by showing mercy. But it's just these things go together. This is a principle of the kingdom. How you judge others is how you will be judged. So judge not means something like don't judge in an overly critical or unmerciful kind of way. Don't have a critical spirit. But then Jesus goes on a little further with this in verses 3, 4, and 5. And he actually uses a very funny image here. Sometimes we're so serious in the way we read the Bible. We take Jesus so seriously that we miss it when Jesus is really funny. Uh, There's actually been a book written called The Humor of Christ, which points out some of the really funny word pictures that Jesus sometimes uses, that Jesus was actually something of a traveling comedian uh, in the ancient Near East, and we need to get the joke, the jokes that Jesus tells. This is comic, if you think about it. 
Uh, and he uses comedy here to expose a form of unrighteous judgment that we are all prone to. And so this is what he says. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when a plank is in your own eye? Okay, so your brother has got a piece of sawdust in his eye, you know, this tiny little speck, and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. I mean, picture that, okay? A big old board or plank coming out of your eye, or a log, you know, that's another way this can be translated, a log coming out of your eye, okay? I mean, imagine that big, huge magnolia tree out there by the, the, where, we, where we had dinner. That tree was cut down. Imagine that big old trunk of that tree sticking out of your eye, and there you are trying to dig out the speck of dust in your brother's eye. That's the kind of picture Jesus is painting here. And what does Jesus call the person who does this kind of thing? He says, you hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. First remove the log from your own eye. Then you will see clearly. And then you can remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye. Now think about this. What's going on here? What does Jesus want us to get from this? How how does this translate into the way we live our lives? Jesus does want us to deal with the speck of dust in our brother's eye. Note that. Jesus is not saying ignore your brother's sin. He's not saying go soft on sin or ignore sin. No, sin must be dealt with. So he's not saying to to simply do nothing about it, to completely overlook it. Sawdust in the eye, after all, hurts. If you've ever, like, say, sawed something off and you weren't wearing eye protection and you were using, say, a circular saw and a piece of that sawdust flings up in your eye, it hurts. It hurts pretty bad to get a piece of sawdust in your eye. But if you've ever had a piece of sawdust in your eye, how do you remove it? How do you remove it? Very, very gently, right? That's how you deal with the sawdust in your eye. And if you don't deal with it very gently, what can you do? You can actually make it a whole lot worse. You can actually damage the eye if you are really rough when you try to get that speck of sawdust out. That's what Jesus is saying. To remove it, you've got to be gentle, but also to remove it, you've got to be able to see clearly yourself. And that means you can't have something blocking your own vision. If you still have something big in your own eye, you can't see well enough to pull something out of of another's eye. If you've got something blocking your own vision, there's no way that you can go get something out of someone else's eye. If your own eye is blocked, you can't help their eye. And so Jesus is teaching here how we go about dealing with the sins of others, how we prepare ourselves to deal with the sins of others. The way to prepare yourself to confront or correct your brother in his shortcoming is to deal with your own shortcomings first. How many of you guys have listened to any of Jordan Peterson? Okay, you know that name? Okay. One of the, one of the, and Peterson's not a Christian, and there's all kinds of problems with his message, but there's a lot of things he's got right because he's in touch with reality in all kinds of really important ways that so many people in our culture, even in the church, I would say, are not in touch with reality. But one of the things that he says, and I think this is found in his message to millennials or something like that, is you've got to sort yourself out first. And he says, you know, we've got these people today who want to go fix all these huge problems in the world, and they can't even make their bed in the morning or keep their bedroom cleaned up. Okay, how are you going to go fix the world and clean up the mess in the world if you can't clean up this mess in your own bedroom 
Fix yourself first. Deal with yourself first. That's just the teaching of Jesus. Deal with yourself first. You've got to judge yourself before you can judge others. You've got to correct yourself before you can correct others. I think in Galatians 6, Paul gives us the same kind of teaching when he writes, Brothers, if any of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Okay, who's the spiritual person? You know, that's who should do the correcting. Who is the spiritual person? Well, it's a person who is full of the Spirit. A person who is full of the Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also the person who's been convicted by the Spirit of his own sin. He's been convicted of his own sin first, and he's dealt with that, and so now he can approach another in humility and in gentleness. And that's really the point Paul is making about how things should function in the body of Christ. Or here's another way to put it. Correct people the way you would want to be corrected. You know there are times where you've been corrected by others, and at some level you know you needed the correction, but you're also thinking to yourself, you know, I wish they had done that a little bit differently. I wish they had treated me a little bit differently when they told me what I needed to hear. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. In Matthew 7:12, Jesus gives us what has become known as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, this applies to judging and correcting as well. Correct others in the way you want to be corrected. Judge others the way you would want to be judged. Now, who does Jesus most likely have in mind here when he talks about this kind of wrongful judging, this kind of blind judging or self-righteous judging? He's probably talking about the Pharisees. Because one of the things we learned from the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day, and the most, you could say, they were the religious conservatives of the day. They were the people who were, in many ways, closest to the mark, although we also see they were really wide of the mark uh, in other ways. But what were the Pharisees doing? Well, one of the things we learn about the Pharisees in the Gospels is that the Pharisees had a real hypocritical streak. And they had a tendency to condemn people for doing the very things they did, albeit in secret. They were committing those same sins, but in private. Uh, I preached a sermon one time called, You Might Be a Pharisee If, you know, filled in the blank several different ways, you know, all the different kind of things we see the Pharisees doing. Well, here, here, here's another one. You might be a Pharisee if you judge others for doing the very things you do. And why would the Pharisees do that? Well, they do that because it's another way they can prove themselves righteous. Okay, if you condemn others while you acquit yourself, you know, let's say it's sin X is what's involved. Just call it sin X and you fill in the blank. You condemn others for doing X, but you acquit yourself for doing X. You know, we have a word for that. It's the word hypocrite. It's hypocrisy. And what this hypocrisy does is it drives sin underground. The Pharisees were sinners, just like everybody else, but they wouldn't admit it. They were sinners, but they wouldn't admit it. They wouldn't let their sin be exposed. They wanted to look righteous in the eyes of others. And to be honest with you, this wrong kind of judging that is the mark of hypocrisy, you need to know because of the churches you've grown up in, the kind of religious circles you've been in, this is a characteristic sin of religious communities, it is especially a representative sin of conservative religious communities, like our churches in the CREC, 
and, and I think it's and, and I think actually the more you could say conservative, traditional, or strict the religious community is, the more of a danger it becomes. To hide our own sin so others won't see us as sinners while condemning the sins of others so people will see us as righteous. It is a great affliction, I would say, especially in conservative religious communities. And you need to know that because you've grown up in conservative religious communities. And a great temptation for you will be to hide your own sin while condemning those same sins or similar sins in others. But that's hypocrisy. That's the very kind of judgment that Jesus is saying you should not engage in. The answer to it is not to condemn the sins in others. Again, understand that. If there's a speck in your brother's eye, it needs to be dealt with. But you've got to deal with your own sin. You've got to deal with the plank in your own eye first. And understand, we all have that inner Pharisee that wants to accuse others even as we excuse ourselves. So-and-so told a lie, he's a liar, and I've labeled him that way. I told a lie, well, it was complicated. It was a difficult situation. Uh, If you understood all the nuances of my situation, you'd see why I fudged the truth there. You're hard on the sins of others, and you're soft on on, on the sins you commit. We all have a tendency to do that. But this is the mark of the Pharisees. To see others' faults as great, as huge, but to be blind to our own faults. In other words, we reverse the the, the image that Jesus gives here. We think we've just got the little speck. I'm not much of a sinner. But the other guy's got the plank in his eye. Can you believe what he did? That's how we act. That's how we deal with others. We tend to be far harder on the sins of others than we are on our own sins. That's, just, that's a fact in your family. That's a fact in your church. That's a fact of life for all of us. It's a tendency we all have. You need to know that about yourself, and you need to deal with that in yourself. This is the very kind of thing Jesus forbids. This tendency we have to minimize our own faults while maximizing the faults of others. And Jesus says, if anything, we ought to do the opposite. Paul, I think, exposes this Uh, among the Jews in Romans chapter 2, where basically he says to his Jewish conversation partner in the book of Romans, he says, how can you condemn the Gentiles for doing the very same things you do? You think you're so special and holy and set apart, but you live just like the Gentiles do. And so in passing judgment on them, you actually condemn yourselves because you practice the very things you condemn. Those same sins you condemn in others are found in you. So your condemnation of others becomes a self-condemnation. So he says to the Jews, who, who, you who teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who despise idols, do you still commit idolatry? You who boast in the law, do you still break the law? I mean, Romans 2 is practically a commentary on these verses in Matthew chapter 7. It's the same theme. We can be too quick to deal out judgment towards others. I, I, there's a great scene. I, the scene's great in the book. Uh, it's also great in the movie, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, when uh, the, uh, the, the fellowship has entered the caves of Mora. I'm, I can't pronounce that correctly. Uh, you, correct, you, you judge the way I pronounce it, okay? And then you can come tell me the right way to pronounce it afterwards. But they're in the caves, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in the mines. And they've lost their way, and they're waiting on Gandalf, to use his sense of smell to get a sense for which direction they should go. 
And meanwhile, Frodo realizes they've been followed by this despicable creature, Gollum, that he's been following the fellowship. He's heard the footsteps. He's seen the shadows. And he realizes Gollum's on their trail. And so Frodo speaks with Gandalf, who, of course, also knows that Gollum is tracking them. And Frodo says to Gandalf, "'Tis a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance." Thinking, if only Bilbo had killed Gollum when he had the opportunity. Gandalf, being much wiser, looks back and says to Frodo, "'Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand.'" Frodo responds, "'Well, he deserved to die anyway.'" But then Gandalf says, "'I think some of the best words Tolkien ever wrote.'" Words Frodo needed to hear, words we need to hear. Gandalf says, yes, he does deserve to die. But many who live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give it to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Gandalf speaks with wisdom there, pointing out, that the fates of all of them may hinge upon the pity of Bilbo. That Bilbo sparing this miserable creature Gollum, that may, you know, Gollum may still have some part to play in all of this, which of course, as it turns out, he very much does. But the words of Gandalf are right on target, very much like the words of Jesus. Do not be too quick to deal out death and judgment. Showing pity can serve God's purposes. Sometimes we think we're God's appointed, God's appointed prophets to go around telling everybody else what they're doing wrong. You know, no mercy, no pity for anybody. I've got to tell you what God thinks about what you're doing. Okay? It may be you need to say all those things, but there's a right and a wrong way to say them. And until you have corrected your own sin, until you've repented of your own sin, until you've dealt with your own sin, until you are spiritual, in the words of Galatians 6, you're not fit to correct another. It's a dangerous thing to judge another. If you don't know what your own sins and your own weaknesses are, don't go talking to others about their sins and weaknesses. You have to do eye surgery on yourself before you can see clearly enough to do eye surgery on someone else. What this means is that it is possible to be right and wrong at the same time. It's possible to be right and toxic at the same time. To be right about the issue and wrong in the way you deal with the person at the same time. It's possibly right and wrong at the same time. Or to put it another way, it's not enough to be right. You have to be right in the right way. There is a deeper right than being right. And if we want to be right all the way down as we should, we've got to be right not just about the issue, but we've got to be right in the way we deal with those who are wrong about the issue. We've got to be humble in how we approach them, spiritual in how we approach them. It's possible to be right and self-righteous at the same time. And if you are right and self-righteous at the same time, you will end up doing just as much damage as if you were wrong in the first place, wrong about the issue, whatever it might be. There is a deeper right than being right. It's the rightness, the righteousness of humility and love. And so again, I want to ask you, I want to cover the same ground again. Do you focus mainly on the faults of others? Do you complain about other people a lot? Do you 
pick out the bad things in other people's lives? Do you let the bad in the people around you outweigh the good? For example, what would you say if I collected all of Tom Brady's bad plays through the years? Okay, for you ladies who may not know, Tom Brady is the quarterback of the New England Patriots. Okay? <laughs> Tom Brady, is, everybody would say, is one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever live, to ever play the game, maybe the greatest, depending on how you judge Tom Brady. Okay? But what if I collected all of Tom Brady's worst plays through the years? And so instead of a Tom Brady highlight reel, I gave you a low light reel. All Tom Brady's worst plays, worst, worst games. And I said, you know what? Tom Brady's really not that great of a quarterback. Oh, sure, he's got nine Super Bowl appearances. Oh, sure, he's won, like, what, six of them and all these MVPs. But you know what? In 2010, in a playoff game against the Baltimore Ravens, he only threw for a measly 150 yards, and he threw three interceptions, and they lost the game. Can you believe that, Tom Brady? He can't be that good. He lost to the Ravens in 2010 in that one game. Okay, the reality is there might be a speck in Tom Brady's eye. Maybe you could find some kind of fault with the way he plays quarterback. But there's a plank in my eye because I'm missing so much. Brady might have had a bad day, but he's still a great quarterback. If I put together a low-light reel, I'm actually misjudging. That's not fair. That's not right. Okay, but we do that with other people in our lives. We put together in our minds a low-light reel. All their worst moments, all the times they mistreated me overlooking and forgetting all the good things they've done. How many of us judge others by their worst rather than their best? Why do we do that? Think about that. Why do we enjoy finding faults in other people? Why do we enjoy finding things that other people are doing wrong? Why do we kind of get a sense of satisfaction out of that, a kind of joy in their failure? You need to know when we do this, we are actually serving Satan. When you focus on the sins and weaknesses of others, you are serving Satan, not Jesus. You are self-righteous, and self-righteousness is satanic. Self-righteousness is indeed one of the greatest tools the devil wields against us. One of the greatest weapons that Satan wields against the church. Uh, there's a pastor in Arkansas, Kevin Thompson, who did an article on this. I just want to read you a few excerpts uh, because it's really, really good. He calls this the demonic danger of self-righteousness. He says, what if in the name of doing God's work, we find ourselves furthering the cause of Satan? You think you're doing God's work and you're actually doing Satan's. He says, one of the most vicious and subtle attacks on God's church is Satan's determination to destroy the saints by dividing them until we bite and devour one another, as Galatians 5.15 puts it. One of Satan's favorite tools to accomplish this aim is the saint's own self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is like a snowball rolling down the hill that gets larger as it rolls, picking up momentum and force as others join in. He says, I've seen some get so frenzied in their zeal, they'd roll that snowball right over Jesus to attack the object of their disdain. They so want to see another condemned that they'd, just, you know, they'd even roll right over Jesus with the snowball to get it done. But then he says, what if Jesus views that object of your scorn as one of his beloved sons or daughters? What if Christ died for the person you're attacking? 
says, remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says God has one church, a very imperfect church. If we tear that one church apart, what's left? An open playing field for Satan. And so he says we should spend the vast majority of our time judging ourselves first and encouraging others rather than attacking them. We need to be aware of the danger, even the demonic allure of self-righteousness. We have to be aware of our tendency to have a superiority complex, to look down on others from this lofty perch where we've put ourselves. We have this tendency to put others down as a way of propping ourselves up, of condemning others as a way of justifying ourselves. We have this need to feel righteous, don't we? It expresses itself in pride and self-righteous judgments, this need to feel superior to others. We are self-justifiers, but all too often we condemn others as a way of justifying ourselves. I'm better than so-and-so, so he's condemned, and I must be righteous. This is how Charles Spurgeon put it. Spurgeon said, we accuse others to excuse ourselves. I accuse you to excuse me. We accuse others to excuse ourselves. We are such fools as to dream that we are better because others are worse. And we talk as if we could get up by pulling others down. Condemning somebody else actually doesn't make you any more righteous in the eyes of God. It might make you feel better in your own twisted heart, in this twisted kind of self-righteous way. But it doesn't actually make you any more righteous before God, and that's where it counts. This is the problem Jesus is identifying, this wrong kind of judging. When Jesus says, judge not, this is what he means. So let me leave you with this. If this is what Jesus means, how can we break free from this kind of self-righteousness, this satanic way of judging others? There's a few things here I want to recommend to you. The first is simply to remember that you're a sinner, And whether you're a greater sinner or a lesser sinner than somebody else doesn't matter. You're a sinner, which means you are condemned to an eternity in hell apart from one thing. And that is the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins. You will not be judged and condemned to hell at the last day because Jesus stood trial and took judgment in your place. And if you trust in him then you're going to be spared that judgment of condemnation at the last day. Even now, if you're trusting in Him, God has declared you as righteous and accepted you as righteous. And knowing that frees you from having to play this judgment game, from having to put down others to build yourself up. That's the first thing you have to know. Here's something else you need to know along with that. You need to see your need for grace, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, I think all of us see that, but your ongoing need for grace. Jesus died for Christians, too. A lot of times we think, oh, the gospel is for non-Christians. That's what we present to non-Christians, and then we move beyond that. No, you need the gospel. You need the death of Jesus for you every bit as much today as when you first came to know Jesus. You need to see your ongoing need for grace. You need to recognize you're not really the judge. You're one of the accused. 
because you have sins. You've got shortcomings. God's law accuses you of sin, but your sin has been dealt with on the cross. Not just the sins you committed maybe before you became a Christian or earlier in life, but the sins you commit today, the sins you'll commit tomorrow, the sins you'll commit 20 years from now. It's all dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous on the cross. That's the Christian message. You need to know that. You need to live by that. That sets you free. When you've accepted that about yourself, that you're a sinner whose only hope is Jesus, then you're in a pretty good position to go and talk to other people about their sin. Then we're in a pretty good position to talk to our culture about its sin. The only person who never had any shortcomings is Jesus. The only person who never had a plank in his eye, much less a speck of sawdust, is Jesus. So see what Jesus has done for you. See your own need for mercy. When you see your own need for mercy, you're prepared to show mercy to others. To not just accuse people of what they might have done, but to show them love, to show them grace, to show them forgiveness, to show them kindness, to encourage them, to help them, to not just condemn them for their sin, but to help pull them out of it. To be that spiritual person who can rescue and restore others who are in sin. The gospel doesn't mean we don't make any more moral judgments. We still do make moral judgments. We have to. We can still say and must say, this is right, that is wrong. We have to say that. But we do it with humility and love. We do it in a way that that, that connects that moral message we have with the forgiveness and grace of the gospel. Here's another thing you've got to recognize about yourself. Recognize the destructive force of envy in your life. That envy is demonic. It too is a form of self-righteousness and self-justification. Envy drives a lot of our demonic judgmentalism. Envy makes us judgmental towards others. Think about envy this way. You know, anybody ever been crab hunting on the beach? You know, where you go catch crabs and you throw them in a bucket? Okay, and a crab will start to crawl up out of the bucket. And what happens? What do the other crabs do? they end up pulling it right back down into the bucket. Okay? Those crabs in the bottom of the bucket won't let any other crabs get out. Okay? We tend to do that with each other. This is what crabs do. They pull one another down. We tend to do this with each other. It's okay if others are better than you in some area. Be happy for them. Rejoice in their success. Rejoice in the prosperity of others. The gospel frees you to do that. You don't have to be a crab. Okay? You don't have to be envious. Uh, you, can, you can enjoy the successes of others knowing you're right with God because of Jesus and it, it's not dependent on how much success you can have or having more success than somebody else. Somebody gets better grades than you, that's okay. Somebody's going to make more money than you, that's okay. Your justification's not tied up in that. You don't have to justify yourself. God has justified you in Christ. So you can trust God to take care of you. You don't have to pull others down to make you feel better about yourself. Just listen to what God says about you in your word, in his word, in the scriptures. That will make you feel as good about yourself as you could possibly feel. To know how God thinks about you, to know his judgment of you now is that you are righteous, you are his adopted child, he loves you, he's happy with you. And one more thing, One other thing here, one other way to deal with self-righteousness and to put it to death is to learn to laugh at yourself, to not take yourself so seriously, to learn to laugh with Jesus at yourself. That's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 7. He's really laughing at you. He's laughing at your self-righteousness. He's being funny, mocking your self-righteousness. 
Jesus is a comedian, and this is one of his jokes. And you don't want to be the butt of his joke, but you will be if you're self-righteous in your judgment. He's painting this ridiculous picture. He's poking fun at the self-righteous. I mean, an eye doctor who has a plank in his own eye going after a speck in another's eye. Picture that in your mind. It's a cartoon. I mean, it's really funny if you just think about it, if you picture it. Learn to laugh at yourself. Quit taking yourself so seriously. The plank and the speck picture is funny. And Jesus is using humor to show how ridiculous it is, how absurd it is to be self-righteous. Jesus is saying, look, if you have an overinflated sense of the self, I'm going to puncture it. If your balloon gets too full, I'm going to pop it. I'm going to show you just how absurd, even comical it is, how ridiculous you look when you're being self-righteous. That speck plank picture is a way of ridiculing us when we are self-righteous, when we're puffed up, when we're thinking too highly of ourselves. We know that people who are pretentious are ridiculous. But that's how you look when you judge in this way. Get a sense of proportion. Get real. Stop having a critical spirit. That critical spirit comes from wanting to elevate yourself so you can look down on others. No, Jesus says. Crucify your chronic superiority complex. See your need for grace and claim that grace and then deal with others in love and humility. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Jesus and I pray that we would take it to heart that we would become spiritual people who could restore others when they've fallen into sin because we've dealt with our own sin first and foremost. May we see that Jesus has stood trial for us. May we see that it does us no good to accuse others while excusing ourselves. May we judge with a righteous judgment. May we judge in love and in humility. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.